This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the podcast. This week, Blaze is out of town, so we're going to have an interlude episode once again. I know we've been having a few of these recently. Uh, The topic I chose for today is certainly a scandalizing one for most of us, especially with the recent events in the United States. This is something fresh on everyone's minds, no doubt. Today's topic is abortion. Now, please don't start making assumptions about me and my intent. This is not a politics podcast, and I'm not here to convince you of a political ideology. Our sole purpose is to teach you scripture. However, scripture is over 2,000 years old, and the chronological approach we take week to week leaves us no room to address modern cultural phenomenon that otherwise wouldn't come up in this chapter-by-chapter Bible study of ours, because we aim to remain faithful to the text, which strips us of our ability to insert the topics we want to talk about, which is a good thing, but sometimes these are pressing topics that are deeply relevant and should be talked about in a modern setting. Abortion is just one of those. This topic is notoriously backed by Christians, and their justification is the words of Scripture. This can lead to a lot of confusion because the phenomenon of abortion in our culture is nothing more than a political ideology at this point. Anyone who submits to Scripture and is scandalized by the conversation of abortion rights in America is likely to be foggy about what Scripture actually says. This should not be the case. Anyone who hears Scripture would not be scandalized by a modern cultural issue or the complications brought by particular issues such as abortion or slavery. Of course, I am not so arrogant as to say that through a dedicated study of scripture alone that anyone can glide through modern complications effortlessly. I want to believe that, and to be honest, I am arrogant, and I think that I can do that. But I'm wrong. Even the most faithful students of scripture are led astray by the way that modern ideologies manipulate our understanding of the text. We must return continually to the text and allow it to emasculate our intellect and haram, devote to destruction our ego. If we do this, we will know what to do, or at the very least, we will know what not to do in our current modern landscape. We have to do this, especially as teachers of scripture when it comes to Blaze and I or you if you are a teacher of scripture. Our job as teachers is not only to teach the text, but to teach the doing of the text, which means we have to do the text 
better than anyone. And that extends to how we as teachers do scripture in a culture so phenomenally different than the one it was written in. It is a challenge, and it is in these practical applications regarding our interaction with the culture around us where the disconnects occur between denominations and church traditions. It doesn't need to be this way. I do believe that we can come to a common understanding and a common application of Scripture, all of us from different church traditions, but it will be painful, like the excruciating pain of the cross. And unfortunately, because of that, I know that I probably won't see this kind of unity in my lifetime. The path is narrow after all. But we must do the work. A fig tree is not judged by the fruit of a palm. Now, back to the topic at hand. Abortion is not explicitly discussed in the Bible because modern narratives surrounding the idea are only possible because of our modern scientific advancements and our understanding of embryonic development. Anyone can twist scripture to fit a narrative. It's not hard. However, what is hard is to submit to scripture, to leave all desires to justify the self behind. Those who do this paradoxically have the strength to lose all strength. That is, those who make themselves fully submit to the word of Scripture can hear what it is saying. And frankly, it doesn't say much, if anything, about abortion. My intent in this episode is to provide you hearers of Scripture a topical overview of what the Bible does have to say in regard to literal abortion, as well as what it has to say about the most common talking points provided by those who now call themselves victors in light of the overturning of Roe v. Wade here in the States. Of course, I'm referring to those people who are what we call in America pro-life. I will reference their talking points uh, quite often because this party, uh, opposed to their opponents, are the ones who most often reference uh, the Holy Scriptures as proof texts for their ideology. Now, I know some people would feel scandalized by me even calling it an ideology and not calling it Christian doctrine. I call it an ideology because it consists of maxims that are not maxims found in Scripture, but rely on specific interpretations of select verses, and they are removed, those verses, from the total picture of Scripture. However, their opponents, the pro-choice party, also quote obscure verses from Scripture as well to make their opposing arguments, and I'll, I'll touch on those as well, although they are fewer in number. Again, I have my stance on the matter, and I could very easily comb the Bible into the direction I lean, but this is wrong. I am not here to win an argument, and I am not here to be the bindu, the one in the middle. I'm here to share with you what Scripture says. That's all. I'm here to share with you what it says as a totality, which sheds much more light on the matter of abortion in our modern landscape than the weightless claims of both the pro-choice and the pro-life parties. I do not wish to convince you of anything, nor do I wish to give you ammunition for your arguments. I simply wish to teach you scripture in hopes that it rips away whatever fleshly, argumentative perspective you have clothed yourself in, so that you can turn and do good to your neighbor, and teach scripture, and not be misguided by the swaths of people who seek the progression of their half-baked ideologies. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is the complications that people devise from an apparent discontinuity between the New and the Old Testament. We don't have time to go into the nitty-gritty of it all here, but there is no discontinuity. 
Often people say that the New Testament is saying something new, or even that it is incorporating Greek philosophy and theology into the Old Testament. The reason they think this is because the Greek language is inherently more philosophical, and much of it comes from a footing in philosophy and the philosophical schools, and the New Testament is written in this Greek language. Again, without going into the nitty-gritty of it all, every word of the New Testament is coming from the mindset and obedience to the scriptural God found in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and this language is a reflection of the Semitic culture and worldview its authors came from, as well as the nuanced particularities that the authors were trying to get across if they were adding their own input. The Greek of the New Testament, while not a translation of Hebrew, is in every sense of the word a translation. It is translating not the Hebrew language, but the Hebrew thought. I will revisit this word later, but for an example... If there is a word in the Greek New Testament that communicates the idea of the soul, such as psyche, it cannot be understood as the Aristotelian essence of the human form. No, it has to be understood as the Hebrew concept nefesh, which sometimes gets translated the soul in English, but that's an abstract concept to us. The true meaning of the word is simply breath and refers uh, dualistically to the deep-seated breath breathed by a creature, as well as the refreshing breath that they receive when they recover from exhaustion. This is important because Hebrew and other Semitic languages are very practical. They are grounded in reality. They're not lofty and abstract and exciting. They are plain and logical in the sense of being practically useful. So when Christ says, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul, he is not saying soul as in this abstract, detached human form that is this apparition, something apart from the body, but he is saying, fear the one who can remove the very breath seated in a person. Harm can be done to a body, but God can stifle the very breath. Humans can harm another human's body, and if their victim dies, he stops breathing because his body fails to support his biological functions, duh, but they did not destroy his breath. Christ is saying that God can destroy the very breath of a person. That's terrifying. And we should understand the power that God holds as the very giver of that breath. It isn't for us to imagine God destroying our spiritual soul and all this. That's not what it's about. If you understand scriptural Hebrew, not the language, but the thought and the intent found within the language and the culture, then you won't misunderstand Christ in Matthew 10. Why is it so important to do that? Why can we not play with the text and evolve it into a new thing? Well, that's a topic for another day, but to be brief... If we do that, then we can do anything we want. Remember the Pharisees of the New Testament who twisted the law, who taught it, and failed to do it as it was intended. They are the enemies of Scripture in the New Testament, and they exist in the story to be not the compelling villain, but they are there to be a reminder to us. If we do what they did and search Scripture to motivate and justify our ideologies and passions, or even worse, impose those ideologies and passions onto our neighbor— then we are the enemies of Scripture, not Satan, not the devil, us. It's very plain. Now that that's out of the way, I want to discuss a few key concepts found in the Bible that we would consider related to our modern concern of abortion. The importance of these explanations will become clearer when we get to the arguments made by uh, the opponents on either side of the debate Uh, Again, I will stress this. Please do not think that I am grooming you or gaslighting you into one of these ideologies. I am not in the business of winning arguments. 
though I do fall prey to the temptation. And to be frank, I do not care for either ideology. My primary goal here is to teach scripture and equip you with a pure representation of these biblical concepts so that you may discern the dialogues of those who use said concepts in favor of their agenda, and so that you may not become like one of those who use a scripture for an agenda, any agenda, other than the kingdom. We should all know by this point that this kingdom is not at all concerned with our power over American politics. We have no power. Now, I already talked about nefesh and how it doesn't mean soul is in our abstract sense, but more the practical breath that Western philosophers playfully manipulated into some sort of abstract concept, like the breath is this wispy apparition of our essence or some nonsense that's just carried around by our meat sack bodies. The original word in both Greek and Hebrew, siki and nefesh, respectively, simply convey the deep-seated breath that indicates that a person is living. Like when a person finds a seemingly dead body in a TV show, one of the first things they do is put their ear to the body and listen for the nefesh, the breath. They aren't listening for the soul. That doesn't make any sense. The second word and concept that is important for today's topic is the Hebrew word chaya. This word gets translated to life, and in its verbal form simply means to live. This one doesn't mean much else. There isn't really a deep-rooted etymology that I can find. It seems to simply be the word used to describe a creature who is not dead, but living. The third concept is that of motherhood, and it's obvious but particularly Semitic connection to the womb in the Bible. The previous words that I've mentioned play an important role here as we discuss this concept. Now, this is difficult for us Westerners, and particularly us Americans, but in the Semitic mindset, a woman becomes a mother after childbearing. Virginity does not end at intercourse, but more so at the event of birth, meaning her giving birth, right? This act of childbearing is the feter rachim in Hebrew, the breaking of the womb. This is the case in the Bible. Uh, the breaking of the womb is significant for a few reasons. The womb is the seat of mercy because that word rechem for womb comes from the root racham, which in both Hebrew and Arabic means mercy and womb. You might have heard me talk about this in our episode about the renaming of Abraham, but the womb is ultimately, like I said, the seat of mercy. This is not because the womb is mercifully protecting the baby in utero, no. It is merciful because at the breaking of the womb during childbirth, the mother gives away her nefesh, her breath, in the damim, the bloodshed of her giving birth. This all comes from the clearly defined sanctity of blood connected to the nefesh, breath, which we hear in Genesis 9.4, which reads, Only you shall not eat flesh with its nefesh, that is, its dam, its blood, in childbirth, the womb breaks, and in the ultimate act of mercy, the woman gives away her nefesh by her bloodshed, so that another might have nefesh, thus making the woman functionally a mother. For more insight into this, I recommend reading chapter 4 of Father Paul Tarazi's The Rise of Scripture. Uh, so motherhood starts at this point, not before. I'm not going to overstep and assert that this likewise affirms that it is at this moment of birth and first breath that a baby becomes a living thing. I think in the language uh, that's suggested, but it's not clearly stated, so I'm not going to, you know, make more people mad than I need to. 
I think, again, I think the scriptural mindset suggests and maybe even assumes this understanding, all the Genesis 2-7, but with fetuses, unborn babies, etc., it seems to me that the Bible is not interested in that conversation. It's so much more concerned with teaching about birth, beginning, and motherhood than it is with pregnancy and abortion. All that being said, why is it that pro-life and pro-choice talking points seem to disregard all of this information when they bring up the Bible? Well, for one, I don't think they know any of it, but let's look at some of those talking points in light of what I just discussed. So the most common one I've heard is the pro-life stance that a child in the womb is truly a human child that has a relationship with the God of the universe. This is built out of a few arguable presuppositions, uh, just at a foundational level, but I will address the scriptural references made by this assertion, because again, my whole goal here is to teach scripture. Those who hold this position often reference the repetition of the phrase conceived and bore as it is rendered in English. This is the phrase used to describe a woman becoming pregnant and giving birth to a child, such as in Genesis 4 verse 1, where it says Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. Both verbs seem to be directed toward the child and the assumption being made here is that the conception is inextricably linked to the identity of the child Therefore, life and identity start at conception. Well, if you take into account the irrelevance of the child before the breaking of the womb, which I just discussed, then this probably isn't the case. The inclusion of the verb to conceive, which is hara in Hebrew, is most likely a symbol of the fruitfulness of the womb, which can be seen in God's control over the fruitfulness or barrenness of every woman's womb. The verb hara also looks and sounds like the masculine noun har, for mountain with a feminine suffix. Mountains are often used as a symbol for maternal fertility in the ancient world and in the Bible, so that is just, you know, another connection. Let's look at the story of Sarai and Hagar. Sarai becomes jealous when she learns that Hagar conceived. There's no mention of the child she is carrying. Conception is connected to the mother's fruitful womb, not the baby, because it is the womb that Sarai is jealous of. She's jealous because she is barren. Another reference that uh, people often make to support this argument, this particular point that I brought up, is uh, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 15 in particular. If you've ever been near an argument centered on abortion, you've probably heard these verses. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. This passage, if nothing else, is usually used by pro-life party members to assert that a fetus has a personal relationship with the God of the universe. I don't want to take more of your time and bore you to death by elaborating on every Hebrew word, but I will say that this is a pretty loose translation. Oftentimes, English translators take liberty with the Psalms because it is technically poetic literature, and they allow themselves creative freedom when translating particular words and phrases, since they are sometimes unique in the overall scope of uh, biblical Hebrew. But even without diving into the nitty-gritty of the grammar, we can see the holes in this supporting evidence by reading the whole psalm. 
So allow me to read it up until the passage mentioned previously, and I know it's tiring. Uh, there's going to be a lot of scripture reading today, um, but we can't fall trapped to the trap that everybody else falls into. It's a lot easier to manipulate scripture if you don't read the whole passage. So we're going to read the whole passage. Please listen and ask yourself, is this psalm providing commentary on the status, life, or identity of human fetuses in utero? Is the purpose of this psalm to explain when a fetus becomes a person and if abortion is okay? Let's hear it. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So what is the psalm really concerned with? All the talk about God knowing the unformed human certainly raises questions for our philosophically curious minds. But is that really the point of the psalm? By no means. The point is to say that no one knows a person like God does. God knows you, and he knows me, down to the very fiber of our being. He knew the days we were going to have when we were still an embryo. He knew what we would look like as full-grown adults when we were conceived. And he is the one that covered us by our mother's womb. That pretty language about knitting us together is just not there in the original. It once more is a reference to God's control over the human womb, recognizing that it is God who covers us, that's the word, to cover, by the womb of our mother when we are conceived, as he is in control of the entire process, because he is in control of everything, as the maker of the heavens and the earth. How people completely ignore the intent and make this passage into a definition of embryonic life is beyond me. It's ironic because those very people, if they heard the message of the entire psalm, would know that God is completely aware of their thoughts and motivations and is not convinced by their good intentions. Another common talking point is the command, thou shalt not kill. I'm not going to argue this command, obviously, that would be blasphemy. However, this reduces once again to the essential question of whether or not a fetus is a living person. The Bible doesn't have a clear answer. The psalm we just read through is normally the only solid evidence provided by those who say a fetus is a living person. But when you take it as a complete psalm and hear the intent and you understand the Hebraic concepts of life and childbirth, that evidence is not as solid as it seems at first glance. People who call abortion murder 
often quote the passages in Psalms and Kings that reference groups of wicked Canaanites or other people sacrificing their children to idols or burning them alive. Well, the elephant in the room that seems to somehow be hiding from these people is the fact that those children are not fetuses. Again, I'm not saying these people are idiots or they are intentionally twisting scripture. I get it. I can see how someone thinks that a fetus is an unprotected child, an innocent being, and that we as Christians, whose entire faith revolves around caring for the afflicted and the innocent, should stand up for a fetus if its life, quote-unquote, is being threatened by abortion. However, if we are scriptural, we just can't say those things, by the measurement of scripture, at least. We can debate philosophy and science until we're blue in the face, but we cannot bring scripture into the mix because it simply does not have a say on the matter, at least in the way that we want it to. Life, as in nefesh, is never attributed to a fetus. I looked, you know, email me if you find something compelling, I'd like to see it. There's a lot of, and I think it's like around 300 occurrences in the Bible, this word nefesh. So if you find something, let me know. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for embryo or fetus only appears once in the entire Bible, and it's in that psalm that I just read. And there, its use is explicitly reserved to highlight God's complete dominion over creation. As it says, when I was unformed, your eyes saw me. It doesn't say when I was unformed, we had a relationship. It says when I was unformed, you saw me. You know, the more I work on this script, the more I think mulling over these things is pointless you know if you hear these things and you really consider them and then you look into it yourself there's not much to say so that being said that's the last pro-life argument i'm going to directly address the rest of the party's main talking points are you know basically built out of the ones that i did go over so there isn't really much else to discuss however the opposing side often quotes uh, two passages that we haven't gone over yet so i will address those they normally address these two passages in order to illuminate the incongruence between modern pro-life Christians' attitude toward abortion and the Bibles. Those two passages are Numbers 5, 11 through 31, and Exodus 21, 22 through 25. I'll read these and explain what isn't obvious, though I think these passages are pretty straightforward. Uh, now, before I continue, I want to clarify the pro-choice party is not saying that everyone should get abortions. Their stance on the matter is almost completely built on logic and egalitarian Western philosophical ethics and morality. Uh, so I don't have much to say against them because their stance is not founded on scripture, and it would be silly of me to argue with their ideology. I mean, just the name of their party is anti-scriptural, so again, it's silly. The maxim of their ideology is that it is a human right for a woman to have complete agency over her own body, and pro-life politics infringes on that agency. For someone under God's command, when it comes to matters of one's own body, there are no choices. If that person is under God's Torahic ideal, then every choice they make is in accordance with the Torah, and there is no longer choice but obedience. However, I don't impose that reality on non-believers. It's hard to understand if you haven't heard Scripture. Uh, that expectation is for the hearer of Scripture. It's for me, not the stranger only while they are still strangers. You know, I can teach them scripture, and I can teach them and tell them of its promise. I can share with them the Evangelion, the, the good, the correct news. And then all that other stuff can 
come in time. But we are not instructed to subjugate our neighbor. I mean, on the contrary, we are to subjugate ourselves in service to our neighbor. I mean, come on, guys. This whole thing is all about drafting legislation to control the decisions of our neighbor. Why are we even wasting our time with this? How can we not see through all the noise? Once again, my whole purpose here is to teach Scripture and demonstrate the flaws in both parties when they use Scripture for their ideology, because that can be confusing, you know, for believers who are just trying to do the right thing and who want to do what Scripture says to do, but just get overwhelmed by the weight of all this this pressure from, from both sides of the aisle. Therefore, before I move on to the Scripture that the pro-choice party references. I want to remind you all again that it doesn't seem like the pro-choice party is justifying their stance with scripture, but rather they are referencing passages that illustrate the contradictions between the Bible and their pro-life opponents. So Exodus 21 says, when men strive together, which means to fight or, you know, roughhouse, and they hurt a woman who is with child so that there is a miscarriage and yet no harm follows, the one who hurt her shall be fined, according as the woman's husband shall lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. If any harm does follow, meaning the woman is hurt, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So here, with this passage, the pro-choice party says that it seems like the Torah is placing a higher value on the woman's life than that of the fetus. And I would have to agree, that seems pretty straightforward, especially considering the Hebraic concepts we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. But that comes with a caveat that this passage does not justify abortion as an individual person's right. It simply illustrates the Bible's general attitude toward unborn children. The other passage is in Numbers 5, where it says, starting in verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, If any man's wife goes astray and acts unfaithfully against him, if a man lies with her carnally and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil upon it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a cereal offering of jealousy, a cereal offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. So just for clarification... Uh, she has not defiled herself means she has not had her monthly menstrual cycle. She's not bled, which would suggest that she's pregnant. So the husband, under the suspicion that she conceived uh, in infidelity, has this spirit of jealousy come upon him because he believes that she is pregnant with a child that is not his seed. It goes on to say in verse 16, And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the cereal offering of remembrance, which is the cereal offering of jealousy. And in his hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. 
Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you an execration and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your body swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her hand and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the cereal offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the cereal offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the cereal offering as its memorial portion and burn it upon the altar and afterward shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has acted unfaithfully against her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain and her body shall swell and her thigh shall fall away, and the woman shall become an execration among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord. And the priest shall execute upon her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. Now, I know that was a lot. Uh, Pro-choice party members once again use this as a way to illustrate that abortion as an act, as something that happens, is less important than a man's jealousy, according to the Torah, meaning that the Bible places a low importance on abortion in general. Now, we must remember that this is not our culture that this is being written in. In this culture, a man's wife was his property. If he desired for uh, action to be taken when he suspected that she had committed infidelity, this is an instruction to carry out this process. You know, this is hard for us to grapple with. Uh, it seems that the Bible is condoning abortion when you read it at surface level. However, this is not the case. The Bible simply does not have an opinion on abortion, which might be even harder for some of us to accept. This instruction is given to restrict a husband's behavior if his wife conceived a child outside of their marriage. We all know the emotions the husband would be feeling if he discovered this, and we have all heard stories of husbands who have murdered their wives for less. Remember Christ's words when he was questioned about divorce in, in Matthew. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, is it not better to be unmarried? Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So I'm not going to twist Christ's words to fit my point, but I will follow his logic. 
This instruction for a man who believes his wife has been unfaithful was given because of the hardness of men's hearts. It was a limitation, not a how-to. If he had the spirit of jealousy toward his wife, it would be better that he do this than for him to outright murder his wife out of anger toward her. So what do we do? What's the takeaway? Well, hopefully by now you all have a better grasp of you know, this wealth of information. I know it was a lot to take in, but I think it's important to hear Scripture for what it's saying, not for how it can answer our questions. And though I've come to Scripture with a particular topic in mind, I am expanding the passages that I'm looking at to hear what it's saying. I'm not looking at a couple of verses here and there to support my point. I've taken every baseline scriptural argument I've heard and explained what the text is actually saying, not to win an argument or discredit anyone, but for you, dear listener, because frankly, it's a lot of work, and I've just done it for you. You're welcome. But in all seriousness, this episode itself is in vain. You know, if I'm being honest with myself, this entire conversation is vanity. Anyone who truly hears Scripture and builds their house on the rock of Scripture would not be blown down or washed away by the torrent of pro-choice and pro-life propaganda. It's just a storm of noise. A house built upon the rock of Scripture would not even shake because it would be focused on the true issue at hand. The issue that I haven't talked about and the issue that neither party really wants to address. Taking care of the sick, the stranger, and the widow. At the end of the day, that is the only thing the Bible cares about. How many women are struggling with this decision of abortion? Go to them. Help them. Ask them what they need. Don't enforce your religion onto them. God will not ask you on the last day how many people you got to follow your law. He will ask you who you fed, who you clothed, who you visited while they were sick or in prison. If you are so hell-bent on the fetus being carried to term, offer to take it into your own house. If you can't do that, then shut your mouth, you hypocrite. Remember Solomon's mashal one which is strikingly relevant, but I have not heard one person bring up. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, Pardon me, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she laid on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it was not the son that I had birthed. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, This one says, My son is alive and your son is dead. While that one says, No, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order. Cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. 
Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Hear me again. If you are so hellbent on the fetus being carried to term, offer to take it into your own house. The one whose desire is for it to live is its mother. But if your desire for it to live stops after it is born, then you are nothing. You are a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. Take care of the one afflicted by the precariousness of such an ordeal and afflicted by the criminalization they face from our brothers and sisters. If you can't do that, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Be quiet and listen to scripture. That's what I can tell you. That is the only thing I know of that could soften your heart. Thank you for joining me this week. I look forward to my next solo outing where I can discuss yet another easy topic. Pray for our brother Blaze as he returns from his vacation uh, today, the day I'm recording this, actually. Do good this week, dear siblings. Hear scripture. Do scripture. Lord, have mercy on us all. Love you. Bye.